Nancy Wyman, state Democratic chairwoman. Nancy, thanks so much for being here. And with us today is Nancy Wyman. This is the Donkey Talk Podcast with your host, Connecticut Democratic Party chairwoman, Nancy Wyman. Hi, everybody. It's Nancy Wyman. And today I'm very, very lucky to have our new lieutenant governor here to uh, share some time with us and talk to us. Um, Susan Beisowitz, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a Middletown na- native, uh, granddaughter of Greek-Polish immigrants. Um, she's br- brought up in, and graduated from Middletown High School, and she has a little bit of an education after that at, the, at Yale University and at Duke Law School. Um, and she's been ser- she also served in the House in 1993, so we had a couple of years together. And now, and then, of course, she was the Secretary of State from 1999 to 2011. So, Susan, I, thank you for coming today. We really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, the, the average question that we start off with is, how did you get in pol- involved in politics? Ah, well, so I, first of all, I, I have to say, I was always interested in politics uh, growing up, and when I was in high school, I went to American Legion Girls State. You know it. When you were a lieutenant governor, you would visit with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was in high school, Ella Grasso was the governor, and I remember her coming to Girls State and her talking about how she helped people in Connecticut. And I remember thinking then, wow, maybe someday I would like to be in public service And I really didn't imagine that I would run for office myself until uh, I was home uh, on maternity leave with uh, my daughter, Ava. And my husband said one day when we were sitting at the breakfast table, oh, look at this. Our state representative is retiring. You should run for that. That's why I love my husband. He's always <laughs> encouraging uh, me. And, you know, my first reaction was, oh, I just had a baby. Um, you know, I, uh, I have to think about it. And after a couple of days of looking at my daughter and thinking about how we needed to do more for education and the environment, I thought I'm going to stop worrying about these issues and this may be a way to start addressing things that I cared about that would make our our city and our state better. That's great, though. So what did you do from that point to get involved? So what I did was uh, I visited with a woman who was well-known in Democratic circles, Marion Newberg. Uh, I know you know uh, Marion and her daughter, daughter, Esther, and, and, and Deborah. And so... I went to visit with Marion and said, gee, you know, I'm thinking about running for state representative. What should I do? And she said, you know, you should go down to the newspapers and tell them you're running. And so it was with her encouragement that um, I actually announced and had a, had a primary, and but <laughs> made it through because of her great advice and, uh, and had the privilege of, of serving and representing the Middletown area, Middletown, Durham, and and Middlefield. Isn't it nice to have somebody that you can go to talk to? And people just normally say when people, women get involved in politics, they end up talking to men first. But Marianne was such a wonderful woman, and she really knew about her politics. And, and she, and boy did she, 
And you talk about institutional knowledge. Here was a woman who started volunteering for the Democratic Party in 1932 right. when FDR was first running and she had just seen it all. She was the person who ran headquarters in, in Middletown for mm -hmm. years. Uh, she was a state central committee woman, an advisor to governors, friend of senators and congresspeople, and so she was the go-to. Yeah, she really was the go-to person. And back then, you really didn't expect to have it as a woman, to, as a go-to person. That's right, and she often said, had she been born later, she would have run herself. Um, but in the meantime, you know, you and I are, are legacies of her Absolutely. good advice. Absolutely. But, you know, you've always been into the women and how women have succeeded. And, and uh, you even took up the, the job of, of writing a book uh, about our first governor. If I first female governor elected on her. So you want to talk about I, a little bit? I, you know, and I, I would love to talk about um, the contributions that uh, Connecticut has made. And as uh, I am sitting here uh, with you, there are pictures of you with some great <laughs> women leaders like uh, Nancy Pelosi and Rosa DeLauro. And Ella Grasso really um, paved the way for us. So in um, 1974, Ella Grasso uh, was the first woman to run for governor and get elected in her own right and not follow her husband into mm -hmm. office. And uh, she was able to do that with uh, the leadership of John Bailey, who was the leader of the Democratic Party in our state for 30 years, and he had helped on some trailblazing campaigns. He helped Abe Ribicoff uh, become governor and senator. Uh, he helped John F. Kennedy become the first Catholic president. Um, and he, with his leadership, Ella Grasso was uh, able to become governor. And she's someone who started as a state representative like we we did and was in uh, statewide constitutional office. She was secretary of the state for three terms, like me. She went to Congress, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, uh, and you and I have, have stood on her shoulders. And I think she's the reason why we have so many women in the state legislature, maybe not enough. Not enough uh, yet. But we still have to work at that. Yes, we a do. Lot. More to do. Right. More to do. But we, well, we always have had probably more than most states had. Um, and, you know, following in El Grasso or talking about El Grasso is like all the stories that you can tell about the fact that, you know, most people might not know that, you know, the troopers do drive you around. But Ella didn't always stay at the residence. And so she stayed in Windsor. Right, was Windsor? She was Windsor Locks. Windsor Locks. Windsor Locks. Yep. And during the, a terrible storm, she did not want to wait for the troopers to come. So Ella left the house to walk over to the airport where the storm was, the tornado was, to see what was going on. And the troopers had to go find her. Right. And also there's the story of uh, there was the tornado. There was also the snowstorm. And she had been at the residence while the snow started. And then she started to realize that it was coming down very hard and there was a difficult situation. And she got into the car 
uh, with the state trooper. They were driving towards the Capitol. They got stuck in traffic. Everybody was uh, getting stuck in the snow. She just got out, put her boots on, and started walking to the armory because she was a get-it-done kind of governor. Yeah, she did. She did. Uh, People were a little worried, nervous about her. Some of the men mayors were nervous about, you know, dealing with that because if Ella, Ella didn't like it. She let you know about it. She uh, she was a very strong personality. It was interesting because she had this dichotomy, right? Um, on the one hand, she was Mother Ella. She was going right. to take care of everything and everybody. Um, and on the other hand, she was uh, one tough lady who yeah. was in politics at a time when very few women did that. Right. Um, so uh, she could apparently cuss like a truck driver too when when necessary, <laughs> yeah, not true. necessarily in public, but not, and you know a lot of people called her the Italian grandmother, absolutely. <laughs> and then the others didn't call her that. <laughs> but, you know, it, it kind of brings me out to what you're doing now, and and um, uh, you know I'm really kind of excited about hearing about you and the governor set up the Council on Women and Girls, mm-hmm. um, and so and you know you're serving as chair. I am, I am, and you know, the, I think this really speaks to uh, what the governor's priorities are. Um, the governor has uh, been a person who said, you know, when we were on the campaign trail that we would have um, a government that looks like Connecticut, and we've been so proud to uh, watch uh, the appointment of a cabinet where. Uh, half of our cabinet members are women, uh, 40% are people of color. It is absolutely historic. And um, we actually had the first unofficial cabinet meeting in the beginning of March, which was the Governor's Council on Women and Girls. All of our cabinet secretaries and the constitutional officers and our legislative leaders are members of this. Uh, council. And the idea is that in each area of government, we will bring forward uh, ways to advance the interests of women and girls. So whether it's uh, pay equity, reproductive health care, education and STEAM training, um, health and safety, those issues are going to be utmost on uh, the minds and agendas of all those policymakers. And I always like to say uh, women's issues are economic issues. If we raise women up, then all the families in our state are going to benefit. And let me just say uh, how proud I am to have worked with our legislature because we made some great progress with raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. That affects 170,000 families uh, across the state where women are uh, main breadwinners. Um, also to have the strongest paid family medical leave act in the country. And that was something that, uh, you know, we'd been trying for the past six years to do, but it took democratic majorities in the house and in the Senate uh, to do that. And you remember, Mm -hmm. uh, Nancy, what it was like when we had that 1818 split and not, you had to cast, <laughs> cast those tie-breaking votes and right. I haven't had to do that once yeah so yeah. that's uh, good in some thank ways. you voters of Connecticut <laughs> right. for sending more Democrats to yeah, the legislature yeah, it really does help a lot it really does help a lot especially if uh, if the other team doesn't stand up and the whole idea of the issues that you've been just talking about um, 
we're hearing about it in Washington, but nothing's getting done in Washington about it. And at least now we can do, we see with your leadership and the governor's leadership, the ability of getting things done. It might be at the state level, but we definitely don't want to look like Washington, D.C. That's, that's for sure. And we are leading by example in so many ways. One is our state controller as a part of his participation on the Council of Women and Girls, Kevin Lembo, looked at every paycheck of every state employee and worked with the University of Connecticut uh, to try to figure out whether women and men state employees were being paid equally for the same work. Um, and while we did find out that we are doing better than the federal government and better than almost every state, we still have work to do to reduce those discrepancies. And so if we want the private sector uh, to follow in our footsteps, then we need to lead by example. And so we're doing that. Another example is uh, on climate change. Uh, the governor uh, a week ago signed a really strong um, executive order so that our state agencies will com be completely carbon neutral uh, by 2040 because right. this is an existential threat and we need to start dealing with it and nothing's happening in Washington, as you point out, so yeah. we can lead by example. And that's really great because we don't see that always that's coming out there. You know, and, and the fact that women are, right now, the rights of women or the gay and lesbian communities are being attacked from Washington. And we, at least in Connecticut, have to continue to stand up. And so what you're doing on, with this uh, council is exactly that, being ready to fight back, that we don't have to worry about what's going on in Washington, that we in the state are ready for that fight. But, you know, uh, well, first of all, I'll say I'm very uh, proud to uh, live in Connecticut because we have leaders who stand up every day and fight back. Uh, whether it's Rosa DeLauro or Richard Blumenthal, who are fighting back on um, the president's discrimination against immigrants mm -hmm. uh, to our country, or William Tong, who is standing up on the public charge issue. Um, I, it, it is very nice to see that at the same time. Uh, all of us at the state level, the constitutional officers, the governor and I, uh, find that we spend a lot of time every week fighting back on policies that are um, cruel, discriminatory, racist, sexist, homophobic, yeah. um, and uh, it, it's a little frustrating uh, at the same time uh, know that here in Connecticut we protect people's hard-fought right. rights. And because we have the the, the number of people in the legislature that think the same way we do, um, we can continue that fight. And so I really thank you for that. So everybody talks about the census and the 2020 census. You know, I, I know you're leading, you know, you're leading on this too. And could you explain to people what that really means? And Right. Well, so the census comes up every 10 years uh, and it's coming up next year in 2020 and here's why it's really important to every person in the state first of all it is important because of 
federal resources. Uh, the number of people in our state determine how many federal dollars will come back to Connecticut. And right now, sadly, we are at the bottom of the heap. We're one of the states. We're a donor state. We give a, a lot to Washington, mm -hmm. and very little comes back. Um, so 11, almost $11 billion last year came to Connecticut because of the number of people that were counted in the last census in 2010. And now we have the opportunity to make that count again. And every municipality, whether it's a small town or a large city, depends on that federal funding for Head Start, federal school lunch programs, Medicaid, uh, energy assistance for elderly people, student loan assistance, uh, community development, block grants, road and highway funding. There are 55 critical federal programs, and those checks go directly from the federal government to each town and city in our state. And it's important to keep our property taxes down, but to support all those programs like Medicaid, uh, and the other thing, so that's, that's the resource part of it, but the other part of it is political representation. And uh, I don't think we'll lose a Congress member. We have five right now. Uh, but in the future, if we don't see more growth, that is a possibility. And our legislative districts will be redrawn in, in 2022 based on the numbers in each town and city uh, that are that are counted. And you know, if if you look at it incorrectly, there can be a thing called redistricting, where you redistrict people in or out of uh, their seats. That uh, should be thought about. Mm -hmm. That if you don't have the right people in power, you might end up with even less of the right people in power um, as you go through this thing. So, you know, to me, it it really is. The, the cities, everybody has to be ready to go to help out as much as we possibly can on this because it really is um, a, a real citizenship kind of It is, question. it is, and I'm glad you brought up the citizenship issue because we face some challenges as we go to make this count, and the challenges are, one, that... Uh, the president threatened to put a question on the census uh, that would ask whether or not you were a United States citizen with, uh, I believe, the intent to try to discourage people from filling it out. And uh, also another challenge is that uh, there are a lot of hard-to-count areas in our state, especially in our uh, big cities in our metropolitan areas, 25% of the state is in a hard-to-count area where you have a lot of people moving in and moving out. Uh, so these are some of the challenges. And I'll also say to uh, our listeners that this is the first census where you can fill it out online. So we have a digital divide That's in our state. So not everybody has access to uh, a computer. So these are some of the things that we have to get ready for we have to explain to people the Supreme Court struck down the citizenship question. It's not going to be on there. You shouldn't feel afraid to fill it out. Federal law protects each uh, person's privacy. Uh, and that's why we've created these complete count committees. 
in more than 83 municipalities around the state already, and we are out there uh, getting the message out. And what are they exactly? So, the, so we have a complete count committee at the state level. Uh, we were, I believe, one of the first states in the country to do that after California. So we have more than 100 organizations across the state, so chambers of commerce, labor organizations, health centers, nonprofit groups, the League of Women Voters, the NAACP, NALEO, uh, many trusted voices across the state that have networks, and we want those organizations to get the message out in their right. networks, right? And we have asked every town and city in the state to form their own complete count committee because each town and committee, uh, each town and each community is different, as you know, from yeah. representing Tolland. Um, and so we've asked each municipal leader to create a committee that works for their municipality. And I'm very proud to tell you that um, more than half of the municipalities across the state uh, have done that. That's great. That's really great. The, the question I had come out to, to speaking to, of course, going in and out of the cities a lot, is the fear of people coming out because of ISIS and registering because they don't want to be picked up. Mm -hmm. But in your comments, you're, because that the everything is really close to closed up, they don't have that fear. And I'm glad right. you brought this up because this is... Uh, I think one of the challenges, right? It's not just that there is this debate over should the citizenship question be asked. And I think, you know, there was a deliberate uh, uh, thought of trying to chill uh, and discourage people from filling out the census, but also um, the threat of ICE raids, the threat of deportation the treatment of children at the border, all of these things contribute to uh, fear in uh, communities of color and in immigrant communities in our state, and we have a lot of them. Uh, yeah. And that contributes to this fear of somehow answering the door uh, when a representative from the federal government uh, comes. And so that's why we need these trusted voices uh, church groups, um, the NAACP, groups that people have known for years and trusted to say, yes, under federal law, your information is protected. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a citizen or not. This is why it's important for everyone to participate. Um, and it's important for political power and representation, but it's also for important resources that go to each community and benefit all of us. Absolutely right. So I usually ask at the kind of the end of, uh, I always had uh, a saying that, you know, my word was my bond. So if you had to describe a saying that you use and what you feel, what would you say? Work hard and be nice to people. Okay. You know, I, it's, it's uh, and I'm going to, and I'm going to give, uh, an attorney who works for our attorney general uh, credit for that. Uh, I was in the attorney general's office uh, the other day, and uh, one of the leaders in his office had that sign on her wall, uh -huh. and I thought, and I thought that's that's exactly 
uh, the right true. thing if you work hard, if you care about people, um, and you can collaborate and get along, then we can get a lot done. That's for sure, working together. Well, I want to thank you, Susan, so much for coming and, and being with us today. And, uh, um, you know, just keep up the good work that you're doing and you and the governor um, to lead our state, and that's really very important to us. So let me just say that uh, this podcast is available uh, on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, and anywhere else you can get podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe. Thank you all very, very much for listening to us again. See you all soon. Bye.